would please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 6 is our study. Today we will step into uh, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4. Uh, you know me well enough to know that we will not be finished with this today. Uh, my calculations are that these two verses will take three weeks. But you guys know how I am with my calculations and planning, so you just never know. Okay, chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, beginning of verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 6. We will pray and look at the word of the Lord. Father, we come before you, the author and the finisher of our faith. Father, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us hearts longing for you and you alone. May you be the priorities of our lives. Father, as we look at our brother Paul's words here written by your spirit. Father, as they have overwhelmed us, may they continue. May we rest in the assurance of these words. And yet, Father, may you and your spirit inside of your people. Make it part of our foundation of our souls. We may stand in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We're overwhelmed by the person of Christ in anything and everything that goes on in our lives. May we understand that it is your sovereign hand leading, comforting, encouraging to you and you alone. In Christ's name, amen. Verse 18 of chapter 3. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Okay, that's what we're looking at in this text, is the face of Jesus. Uh, to understand, if you go to John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 40, you will find that salvation is beholding the glory of God in Jesus. If that has not happened to you, then please understand this, and I say this as tenderly as I can, you are not saved. There had to be some point in your life where Jesus was revealed through Holy Writ, through the preaching of the gospel, that you've seen the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. When I speak of the glory of God, I'm speaking of the attributes and nature of God manifest in the person of Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul has done in the transition because he compared the Old Covenant to the New Covenant and that the New Covenant's glory far outweighs the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant could not save. The New Covenant does save. Okay? 
And that was, that's the big difference. I mean, the, the old covenant shows the glory of God. But it has no salvation part to it. It's just saying, here's who I am. And then what you do is that you see the glory of God, who he is, and then there's you. And all of a sudden, the lights come on. And you say, oh, gosh, I think it was uh, John Calvin called it worm theology. You know, I see me beholding God and it's one of those, uh-oh. Or as Paul would say, wretched man that I am. Or as Isaiah would say, oh, I am a man of unclean lips. Or just go down the list. Okay. And if that has not happened to you, you're not saved. You're not saved. Because once I behold the face of Jesus, remember what he says here. Verse 18. We all. Okay. Those who have had the veil removed... We all, it doesn't say the pastors with unveiled face. It doesn't say the elders with unveiled face or the deacons with unveiled face. The Sunday school teachers or whatever else you want to throw in there. That's not what it says. You who have drawn to Christ now with unveiled face, behold in a mirror. Behold. I like that word. Behold. You know what that means? Look. Whoa. I like that. I think that's cool. You behold in a mirror. What do you behold? You have a very clear look at the person of Jesus Christ. Have you ever run into these people who read their Bibles all the time and seem clueless? The veil ain't been removed. Okay? I don't know what they're looking at. A dear friend of mine once said, he says, the problem today is there's too many in the church who are trying to master Scripture. He says, instead of allowing the Scripture to master them. When I look at Scripture, 66 books of the Bible, I see Christ. Whether it's Genesis or Revelations, all the way through it, that's all I see is Christ. Here is the manifestation of Christ. The Old Testament says, here's what you're looking for. And the New Testament says, da-da, there it is. And then Revelation says, you thought I was kidding. Okay? And that's when you run into every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Uh, they won't be real happy about it, but that's okay. It's, you know, he's got it worked out. So there's a clear look. It isn't veiled. It isn't a shadow. It isn't a picture. It isn't a type. I see Christ. I mean, I got the four Gospels. Okay? This is the person of Jesus Christ, his life, and his ministry. This is what he did. Okay? And then I have these things called epistles. Okay? Epistle is, another, is a real funny word of saying letters. Okay, I have these letters that explain to me the point of his life and the purpose of his life. And how does that reflect to me today? Okay, so it is clear. But the longer I look at the face of Jesus Christ, then this is the most amazing thing. You are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And then, as you behold, you stand in awe, you sit there and go, wow! That's how God is! Are being transformed into what? The same image. The same image. 
And it's from glory to glory. It goes from one level of the manifestation of the nature and attributes of God to the next level of the manifestation of the nature of God to the next level of the... Oh, I see a pattern. But the key is, am I staring at the face of Jesus? Or have I made Jesus in my own image? I see that a lot today. We create Jesus as we want him to be. And you can't do that. You have to stand back and behold. You know what? One of the things I think it breaks my heart the most is that in the body of Christ today, we don't behold. It isn't this, wow. I, I, I don't understand that I can look at Scripture and I literally am looking into the mind of God and the privilege that I have just to do that. Oh, yeah, I read my Bible today. It's all right. I got a better devotional. It, it does just as well. No. No. I'm not against devotionals. I read two or three of them. But I'm always reading the Word of God every day. Why? Behold! I still to this day read texts and go, whoa! Well, you're supposed to be that way. You're getting paid. <laughs> not enough. <laughs> Take it over with the elders. But do you see what I'm trying to get at? There should be an awe to the privilege of looking at God because as you keep looking at it, it will only transform you into that very image. You were created. You were saved to be conformed into the image of His Son. It would be really nice if you knew what that image was. That's amazing stuff. That should just make you want to be charismatic. Woo! Well, maybe not. But anyway, you know what I'm trying to get at. Verse 1 of chapter 4, we also look as the longer I look into the face of Jesus Christ, I realize that it strengthens me. It strengthens me, regardless of what's going on. Therefore, since I have this ministry... As we have received mercy, there comes a point, and one of the things that I have watched is, we will all say we were saved by grace through faith. Amen, brother. Okay, well, do you understand the mercies that was given to you? I mean, there's moments of, oh man, that was a lot of mercy there. But Paul never lost sight of that. We get bored with it. And that's when we step into, if you look at his next line, he says, we do not lose heart. And it literally means become a coward. Okay, I, I heard a, a friend of mine, you guys may remember Joel, but he, he said the, the evangelical church is like an Arctic river. And I was like, an Arctic river? He says, yeah, it's frozen over at the mouth. And I was like, ooh, gay. Okay, because we don't want to say nothing. We lose, what if they make fun of me? I remember talking to a scientist one time and I said, my best calculations is, is that the planet Earth is about 50, 5280s, what I come up with. And he said, million years? I said, no, thousand. What? How could you be that stupid? 
Well, I'm not. I was just going through it. I said, it's a rough estimate. I'm sorry, but I mean, I didn't go to the jot and to the tittle. I just said, well, if if Adam died at this age and Methuselah died at this age and he died at this age, and I just went through it and added up all these guys' lives. I got 400 years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and boom, boom, and I got this much here. Sorry. Well, I can't believe you would be silly enough to believe that. All of science points to what? I heard this morning, I was listening to the radio. This guy got on there and he says, the, the Hubble telescope has been focusing and, and adjusting and everything. And they've concluded that the universe is about 8 billion years old. Because the Hubble has got no obstructions and it chases light and calculates light and all the rest of it. He said, the problem is... Our outgoing satellites that we've sent out to explore things have concluded that the celestial bodies are 18 billion years old. Hello. That's only a 10 billion year problem. Okay. And I said, you know what? That's perfect. Day three, God hung the spheres in. Day four, he hung the light in. Oh, by the way, it's still only about 5,800. <laughs> so... Okay, why? They're just saying that science has proved that light and the existence is younger than the spheres. Yeah, by a day, but whatever. Okay, well, what day would that be? Uh, The 24-hour one, the little ones. All right, but you you listen to it and we're all... How many of you remember when you went to... uh, Well, some of you probably didn't learn this. When I was in elementary school... Christopher Columbus, they were afraid that he was going to sell off the edge of the earth. Do you remember? Does anybody remember? I mean, some of you really more educated people. But it was, if you looked out at the horizon, we all knew that the world was flat. And everybody said it was the religious leaders that said that. No, it wasn't. It was the scientists. Religious leaders had read Job. And Job had said, the earth is a sphere hanging in nothing. Okay, but scientists says, well, I just keep looking out there and look, you're just going to fall off the edge. I wish they would have. But anyway, um, <laughs> but, but, but do you see what I'm trying to get at? But they say, well, no, it's the religious nuts. Hey, Isaiah knew what the hydrological cycle was. That the water combed the cloud, went to the mountains, rain, came from the river, went back to the ocean, went back up as a cloud, and it just keeps recycling itself. We figured it out in the 1900s. Just listen to the theologians. They're smarter. Well, not all of them, but some of them are. See, that's the thing that I try to get you to understand. When I look at this, it strengthens me. I can look at it and I can say, I don't care what you're throwing at me. So what? I will be courageous enough in what I know of Scripture and my Lord Jesus Christ and the manifestations of the glory of God. I don't care what you say or what you think about me. And it drives people nuts. And I take great joy in that at times. Okay? I've been accused. Well, we hear you're a man of faith. You know what? I've never met a person who's not a person of faith. There's not a human being who's ever walked this planet and ain't got faith in something. Okay? But the thing that I have that so many don't have is my faith has never let me down. Okay? It also purifies us. First part of verse 2. We renounce the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness, adulterating the word of God. 
Okay. Craftiness says I'm going to use whatever I can to achieve my goal. But it says I have I don't do that anymore. Okay. And if you think about it, if you can think back when you before you got saved, wasn't it about you? What can I do to achieve my goal? And then fill in the goal. I mean, the goal can be anything. You know, I, I want a certain job, a certain relationship, a certain position in society or whatever. I will do whatever it takes to fulfill that goal. And he says, nope, I've renounced that. Why? Because some of the times when you look at it just yourself and it's all about you, isn't it a little shameful? Nobody agrees with that. That's, that's scary to everybody. <laughs> oh, it's not shameful. <laughs> Much. All right. But isn't it true? And he says, I've renounced all of that. I don't do anything that is in craftiness, nor would I ever adulterate the word. Why? Because the word is going to mess with my conscience. Isn't it? Does me. You know, I read it and it's like, oh, man, what a drag. Okay, that's why I wanted everybody here when I gave you all the, the book Slave. I wanted you to share the joy that I had. Okay? You guys remember, if you haven't read it, repent. Read it. All right? Because it's got some wonderful stuff in there. Would you get cast your crown for a woman dressed in rags? Did you get to that part yet? It's a blast. <laughs> You're like, oh, geez. You do not fight sin because of your laziness. <laughs> oh, anything else you can encourage me with this morning? It purifies. But it also gives you a love of truth. Verse, the second part of verse 2. Adulterating ourselves. Why? We manifest, but by manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. When you proclaim truth, when you walk in truth, when truth is overwhelming you, you will affect every man, woman, and child's conscience that you come in with. Everybody has a conscience. Okay? I don't care what you think. Well, Hitler didn't have it. Yeah, he did. Everybody has a conscience. God never made anybody without a conscience. Everybody's got a conscience. Now, we can manipulate it, and we can do drugs and throw it out the window, or get drunk and throw it out the window, or, or whatever you want to do with it, but you can dull your conscience. But the truth of the matter is, every human being has a conscience. And when you bring truth to bear to the human conscience, <laughs> you will get a response every time. Every time. Even if you're just sitting in your quiet little place, reading your Bible, truth will mess with your conscience. And it's fun. It's fun. There's times that messing with your conscience, that convicts you. There's other times it messes with your conscience and it comforts you. But this all is based on the fact that I'm looking into the face of Jesus Christ. Now, that's the introduction. Okay, because I want to look at point six and just get started on it today. Verses three and four. Okay, because the look at the face of Jesus is a privilege. Is a privilege. Did you understand that to be able to see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ is a privilege and yet it's limited? We who see him understand the privilege. There are many, many, perhaps most, who do not have that privilege. Look what it says. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
Now remember, those who would draw near to Christ, the veil is removed. And yet there are people in the church, okay? And I'm, I, I know a guy, he, he, he's in his, I think this is his 45th year. He, last Sunday, he finished up the gospel of Mark and in 45 years, he's preached every verse in the New Testament. He finished up Mark last Sunday. Okay. His congregation is about 20 to 25,000 members. And he made a statement to me one time. He's in 45 years in one church. He made a statement to me one time that he believed that the rapture of the church, there's not going to be enough of us missing that anybody will notice. Yo, dude, that's 25,000 people you got. You mean you got, he says, there's going to be a lot of people still here wondering where I am. Okay, and this is a man who's been faithful for the exposition of Scripture for 45, well, a little longer than that, actually, but he's been in his church 45 years, senior pastor. That's stunning. That's stunning. But he's in the L.A. Basin. I mean, how many million people are there, and he's only got 25,000? Not everybody gets the privilege to look into the face of Jesus. Most of the world doesn't. Jesus himself said that the gate is narrow and few there are that find it. You know what that means, right? A lot of people are looking. But few find it. And and I I read this, and uh, he comes off of this great dissertation in contrast of the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant, and then how we all behold in a mirror Jesus. Why does he bring this up? If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul, why, why, why did you put this in here? And it, it became very clear to me. Everywhere, if you read Paul's ministry, everywhere he was, he was attacked. I mean, they either assaulted his character, his what is his motives. Um, I mean, they wanted him dead. Uh, and, and what I found is... Most people look, and if you take even a survey today of the evangelical community, you're going to find out that a lot of people are offended by the Apostle Paul. Okay? Now, the false would say, you are offending people. Okay? Let's be realistic. Do you really believe that the majority of the Corinthians city was saved? Paul was extraordinarily plain. Okay? He was straightforward. There were, you don't see Paul using gimmicks. You don't see Paul trying to beg people into the kingdom of God. Paul was open. 
But, you know, Paul, you keep looking at the cross. Do you understand that it's offensive? I know a big church here in Castle Rock right now has no crosses in it. And I asked a guy about it one time. Guy seems to be faithful to the scriptures. He says, well, the cross is offensive. So we don't have any up. Oh, I should have thought of that. We preach Christ and him crucified. I want to know the power of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. Well, that's kind of a depressing message. See, Paul understood he had nothing else to offer. I don't have anything. I have, I have stepped into that. I don't have anything to offer you guys. All I'm going to do is labor in the book and try to make it as clear and as simple and as straightforward as I can make it. That's it. Well, you know, if you're expecting me to do some audio visual or, I don't know, fireworks or something like that, you're out of your minds. I am not um, imaginative enough. It's simple. It's Jesus Christ and the cross. You have to deal with sin. You deal with judgment. You deal with repentance and salvation. Well, but there... No. That's what it is. And if you look at Paul's message, it is extraordinarily straightforward. You know, I one of the things that has amazed me about the Apostle Paul, I've never had any trouble understanding what he's telling me. Now, I may not like it, but it's not like it was hard for me to understand what he was saying. Well, Paul, that straightforward and that plain and that openness message like that and, you know, judgment and sin and repentance. Do you understand that that just turns people off? I remember talking to a guy one time. I, for many years, I kind of envied him. And because he had an education that was amazing. It was in biblical archaeology with a side order of theology. And the guy was brilliant. I mean, you could sit down and pick his brain. And it was like, wow, dude. Okay. He was a pastor. But he made a statement to me one time. And I remember I was younger and a little more swayed. He says, do you understand that God never has men with the gift of prophecy in a church very long because the gift of prophecy drives people away. And he used Paul as an illustration. When I first heard that, I thought, well, you know, that makes sense. You know, Paul was a couple of three months in Thessalonica, got arrested when he was in Philippi, didn't spend any time in Athens, a couple of years in Corinth, three years in Ephesus. And let's be realistic. Paul had the gift of prophecy. Last Sunday, I celebrated my 17th year, the conclusion of my 17th year. And by the way, I have the gift of prophecy. But I can tell you that of all the gifts, I would prefer not to have that one. Because it does drive people away. When you are straightforward, very plain, and there's no, you know, and I've had people say, well, wonder what he meant by that. Usually what I exactly say. I'm not a politician. 
I say it exactly as it has led to me. And if you don't like it, take it up with the author. That's the way Paul was. But my friend said that the gift of prophecy doesn't exhort and show enough grace. You know what? Paul spent two years in Corinth. And I'll be honest with you, my conclusion is most of the city rejected him. And when he left, the false came in and said, well, his message is okay. The method is wrong. Jew and Gentile, they get tired of it. You're confronting my sin. Do you not understand I had a bad week? There's nothing went right this week. I come to church to be, to be what? Made to feel better? Is that why you come to church? To feel better? I'm the wrong guy. (laughs) I didn't get the feel better gift. (laughs) Many would say that with the wrong method, then... You will not be effective. And that's what my friend was telling me, that the gift of prophecy is great for like a church plant or a revival, but it's the wrong method for church growth. I've heard people say that my gospel preaching is offensive. You should have seen me before I got saved. They would look at Paul and say, you are ineffective because you have the wrong strategy. Actually, what you are trying to do, Paul, is obvious it can't be quite right because when you preach and you go into these cities, whether it's the synagogue or the city square, people become hostile to you, Paul. Paul, they try to kill you. Why do you think they're trying to kill you, Paul? There was a riot in Ephesus because he was preaching the gospel. But see, the problem with the gospel, a.k.a. the good news, you have to deal with the bad news first. And you know what? People's conscience don't want to hear the bad news. Just give me good. Because I had a bad week. Stock market's below 12,000. Paul's message was straightforward. And you know what? I watched Paul whether it is at the Aragopolis in Athens or whether it is at the synagogue in Thessalonica or in Corinth, one of the things that I I cherish the most about the Apostle Paul is that he went right at it. I mean, he was just, boom! (laughs) You know, I preached Christ and Him crucified. He died for you, sinner! (laughs) Ooh, gee! He went right at it. He dealt with sin. He dealt with repentance. You're not even allowed to say repentance in the church today. He dealt with judgment. He dealt with the cross. And you can't even step into forgiveness until you deal with that. If you don't deal with that, what's forgiveness? Look at the cheapened state of grace in the church in America today. Why? We've never dealt with sin. We've never dealt with repentance. Do you understand judgment? Do you understand that? You will spend eternity separated from God? 
And you will spend eternity paying the penalty for your sin. Well, I'm not that bad. Right there, just condemned your... (laughs) There you go. I see it today, you can't, as with the Apostle Paul and his ministry in Corinth or Ephesus or Thessalonica or Berea or wherever he was, that you can't win people by confronting them. You have to be clever. You're giving a bad name to Christianity. If people are that offended by your preaching, please be quiet. See it today all over the place. Well, you're Baptist, so you're into the fire, brimstone, and hell thing, ain't you? Well, actually, I've never taught more about hell than Jesus did. Okay, because that's the other alternative. You either get tr- you either get truth or you get hell. I mean, it, but what do you, you don't understand? No, I do understand. There are not degrees of condemnation. And yet, when I look at the Apostle Paul, I think of what he must be struggling with in the city of Corinth and all these people coming in behind him trying to muddy up everything that he said in it. He was an eloquent speaker. He didn't really have no wisdom. He didn't have any of these things going for him. How can you be listening to this Yahoo? I mean, let's be realistic. If he was God, how come everybody's mad at him and wants him dead? Good question. Paul told Timothy, if you walk in Christ's righteousness, you will be persecuted. Now, you know what's amazing about that statement? That's a biblical truth. It's not a, you might be persecuted. You stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and you will offend people's conscience. So the answer is, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled because they are perishing. You ever thought about that? You know, we have, in in our generation, this season that we are in, this era, we have seen, many of you have seen Billy Graham crusades, have you not? And and he he's he's a powerful speaker. I'll give him that. But then all of a sudden he does the altar thing, and what's his name starts singing "Just as you are" and all the rest of it. You've, you've seen it. And all these people come walking down out of the stadium, and we all sit there and go, "Whoa, whoa, okay." Because what? What? Well, all these people want Jesus. No, they don't. Hmm. Listen, if the gospel is veiled, do you understand that it is not the preacher's fault? If the gospel is veiled, it's not the message. The problem, if the gospel is veiled, is the people. You hear it today. You hear it today. Well, you can't teach on hell. Not to just... Young people who've come in. I mean, it's, it's, it's like the seeker church. Okay. You, you go into your neighborhood and you ask everybody in the neighborhood, fill out a survey on what you would like from church. Well, that's brilliant. Satan, what would you like from church? 
Okay. Perfect. That's how we'll do church. Proclaiming and explaining the word of God. And we have exchanged it and replaced it with all kinds of things. And you know what? The seeker-sensitive thing, they, they said, you know what? <clears throat> We're not sure that this method is working because we got as many people going out the back door as we got coming in the front door. Well, here's the problem. Ain't nobody getting saved. Why would they stay? Listen, one of the things that I have watched that has happened, and I believe that was happening in Corinth, I don't believe this is a new phenomenon, is that the church is now being classified as a bunch of consumers. Okay? And if you've got consumers, they're not going to want preaching. I, I want to be as straightforward as I can. Okay? I, I guess my wife would say, he's about to be blunt. <clears throat> I am not here to persuade anybody to buy. And I'll be honest with you. If nobody buys one thing, that's fine with me. Right? Because I've done my job anyway. I can't make you purchase Jesus. I can't sway the passions of your heart. If Him dying for your sin is not enough to persuade you, Then you're veiled. And you know what? I can't remove the veil. But you know what I do? I can expose the resistance to buying. I bring truth. It makes your conscience mad at me. And the truth of the matter is, it's just exposing the resistance that is in your nature. Someone said, and I quote, Preaching is a sacrament of divine sovereignty. That's good. That is really good. It is a sacred trust proving God's sovereignty. The gospel is not a product. I am not a salesman and you are not consumers. And yet, if you look at the church, what do you see? I mean, even evangelism. We've made evangelism, come on down, let's make a deal. No, evangelism is nothing more than proclaiming truth to the human conscience. Did you know that the best preachers any time ever? Let's think about this for a second. The best preacher that's ever walked the planet. Jesus Christ. And yet he couldn't change anybody. You ever think about that? I mean, he had 12 guys. One betrayed him. One denied him. And the other, poof, they just vanished. And it wasn't until the moving of the sovereign God to the Spirit did anything start really happening. You look at it, and if you look at his ministry, the conclusion was, kill him. 
Why? He was bringing truth to bear to the human conscience. And their response was killing. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. I know three pastors in this town right now who are trying their best not to offend anyone. And I thought, what a miserable life that has to be to try to do that. To look at the Word all week or however long they look at it and then try to bring a message of a holy, righteous God and deliver that message so that you're not mad. That would be awful existence. You know, I was, I was thinking about this. The best illustration that you take the best preacher, they can't change anybody. You ever thought about that? I don't care who the preacher is. You think in your mind the best preacher you could ever read or heard or what you could ever do, you can't change anybody. It was kind of, kind of like the best illustration I can think about is, have you ever heard of arranged marriages? Try to sell that today. Think that would work? But have you ever thought about it? If you were to take the father of the family who was a godly man following Christ and he found a godly man to give his daughter to, would that not be perfect? And yet, what do we do? Well, we're going to go on a date. Perfect. Isn't that consumers and products and salesmen? Well, you know, I won't do a marriage in my church unless they have six weeks of counseling. Six weeks of counseling? Is that the magic number? Let me tell you something. Six weeks of counseling won't do it. It will take a lifetime of counseling. There's variances. Variables. And all them other V words you don't want to think about. But see, see what I'm trying to get at? But in the arranged marriage, you have a man who has discernment over an individual and he looks at this person and I have raised this person and if I arrange this, then this will be harmony. Well, I'm not going to let you do that. Oh, look, resistance. Resistance. You know, I was looking in Russia. They don't allow dating in the church. And you can go with a person somewhere as long as you've got a Christian couple with you. But your quote-unquote dating is done in, in the youth fellowship times at the church. That's where you get to know each other. And it is just borderline arranged marriages. You know, this elder knows this elder and his daughter and his son, and yes, this will be great. And we look at that, well, that's barbaric, arcane. Nothing. You know what the divorce rate in the church in Russia is? Non-existent. They can't tell you anybody who's been in the church who's divorced. Why? We've already protected it before it even got to that point. I had a young couple who were my uh, interpreters when I was in Russia. I was, my train was leaving about midnight or something like that, and it was cold and rainy and nasty outside. They wanted to come and say goodbye to me. They w weren't dating, but they wanted to be married. 
Okay, and they had to find somebody in the church at midnight to escort them down to the train station so that they could come in and say goodbye to me. And I was like, wow, but I can't sell out in the United States. <laughs> Listen, I can't, nor do I have any ability to release anyone from the chains of sin. It's impossible for me. It was impossible for Paul, Peter, John, Dr. MacArthur, Dr. Olford. They don't have the ability. Because people in the bondage of sin are dead in their trespasses and sin and they're blind. And I'm going to overcome that how? Cleverness? Big screen. Mood music. That's the do it. Really? It only way a person will come out of the chains of their own sin is by, by divine intervention. Natural man knows not the things of God. And you're going to make them know it? Really? I don't think so. Preaching the cross is foolishness to the lost. You bring truth to bear, and guess what? It'll mess with their conscience. And I have seen this over and over and over and over and over again. It's what I call consumer resistance. I don't want what you're selling. That's good because I'm not selling nothing. See, truth in the face of Jesus Christ flat out attacks the human conscience. Why do we prefer music in church? Just ask yourself a question. Do anybody know who led Paul's music? How about Timothy's music? Anybody know who led their music? Why is that a, a focus of the church? Because there's no truth in it, and it doesn't mess with people's conscience, and you can also turn and smile. Jesus loves me, this I know, cause the Bible tell me so. There's some theology there. I mean, have you, do you know how many hymns there are dealing with obedience? I only know one. Trust and obey. Well, why wouldn't we show obedience more? Because it messes with your conscience. Listen, sinners do not like truth. See, what I want and what I do is that I want every person who hears me to come to the reality about your resistance to truth. Let me ask you a question. Why does the Bible say that the woman is to submit to her husband? God don't like women. Why did he say that? Why would he say that? 
I can't believe that. He doesn't understand. This is 2011. Why would God ever say that women are the weaker vessel? Try it. How could the Bible... Oh, it was Paul. I will not have women teach over men. But Paul had an attitude toward women. You know, some people say that when he got saved, his wife left him and just crushed him. And ever since then, he was sort of on women. I heard a guy preach that. And you're like, what? What is that? Why would God say those things? Because God created us. And he understood that women were the weaker vessel. They were susceptible to the craftiness of Satan. And that they need to be protected a little bit better than Adam did Eve. Because then all of a sudden he says, Men, you ought to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And you look at that and you think, Well, I do. Really? You're going to hang on a cross for your wife. Go ahead before me. <laughs> all right. And then, then all of a sudden you got worship with the word. Well, I don't even read the Bible. Oh, there we have the problem. Why do we like music? Because it takes me away from what the truth is. And the truth sometimes hurts. Have you ever heard a message from me that, uh, what's the statement that I heard? It, it mashed my toes. Well, let me tell you something. I love you guys, but I spent the week with it. That's why I like flip-flops. Because if I had steel toe boots on, he bends the steel toes. See, sinner don't like truth. But my responsibility and your responsibility is to bring the reality of that resistance to those people. That's what they call the path of conviction. The path of conviction is then the point of the gospel. And if you haven't got conviction, what would you get saved from? At the point of conviction because of the path, The gospel comes into the power of the Holy Spirit. It takes the conviction of sin and the truth of the gospel regenerates that soul. They are reborn and it's a sovereign work. And all you did was give them truth. And they got mad at you. But then the Spirit takes over. And preaching has done its work. Or you proclaim truth and the heart becomes calloused. The neck becomes stiffer, and guess what? The sovereign work of the Spirit has still done its work. That's what this text is. Paul wants to show the sinner his resistance. And you know what? Uh, You deal with it with Christians. Same thing happens with the doctrine of sanctification. You bring truth to bear on it. Right? And sometimes they go, I'll just go start the second Baptist church. Or I'll go somewhere else. Or I'll go do this. But all you did was show the resistance. You brought truth to bear. You can't make them holier. 
I don't care how hard you try. You ain't going to do it. You can be the best teacher in the world, the most spirit-filled person that's ever walked the planet, and you know what? You still ain't going to get it done. It is truth against the conscience. And you know what truth does? It intimidates our sin. Okay, and then the battle is on. My service, and you need to understand this, is that I have to prepare week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out. And you know what? I I know some of you. I love you all. I've known some of you for years and years and years. But there's times when I have been preaching that I know you tune out. I know. Not me, Pastor. Okay? But I know the look of... I'm not listening no more. Okay, and then all of a sudden you tune back in. I like that part. The problem is, I don't get to do that in the course of weeks of study of Scripture. I can tune it out for a second, but he says, you're going to keep looking at this book? This isn't going to be easy. But you guys can say, well, you know, he's going a little long. I'll take a little eye-open nap. You guys know what I'm talking about. I've seen you guys. You just, ding. Lights are on. Nobody's home. Then I'll say, ding. Receiving again. Why? Because there's times when the truth comes rolling in on you and you're like, time to hibernate. Because he can't be talking to me. Or here's the one that you will always deal with. Well, if such and such was here, they really need to hear that. Oh. God's not sovereign? I think he wanted you here to hear it. All right? I see people who are trying to use a method. They're trying to use a a technique. And all I can think of is, really? You have people who are veiled to the gospel and you're going to be clever and make them hear. I don't, I don't even want, that isn't even pride. That is the height of stupidity. I mean, you, you, that, that makes, duh, brilliant. Really, a soul veiled to the truth of God, the person of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to do some kind of manipulation thing that they will see. Really? Really? Well, if we have certain music, Certain lights to make the mood right. You know, if we had audio visual, some big screen, something or other, a drum, maybe a really slow acoustic guitar. Oh, that'll open the veil. You show me the method and or technique that can break the chains of sin. Really? There is no method and there is no technique. It can't and it won't. And here's the single reason. And I'm going to close with this thought. I want you to think about this. Here's the single reason that method and technique can't do it. All right? You ready? It exalts the preacher. My next point is a look that humbles 
And if you've got a method and or a technique, why do people's churches flourish, get these big old monster churches, and the next thing you see is they write a book on how to do it? Really? Your method, your technique is going to break the chains of sin. It exalts the preacher. Tell me I'm wrong. Look around today in the church and tell me I'm wrong on that. The preacher all of a sudden becomes the hero. I ain't no hero. I'm the same thing Paul says here. I'm a doulos. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. That's kind of hard for me to be, be a hero if I'm a slave. Listen, you can't save yourselves. Did you know that? You know what else? You can't sanctify yourself. Bummer. It's a divine power of a sovereign God that saves and sanctifies. Do you understand? I can't save you. Guess what? I can't sanctify you either. All I can do is give you truth. And sometimes I love you. Sometimes it exposes your resistance. And I I don't take any pleasure in that. I'll be honest with you. But if God needs it exposed, then he will do it by the deliverance of the truth. The Apostle Paul says here, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. It is veiled to those who are perishing. And you and I have absolutely no ability whatsoever to remove that veil. None. That's why you show yourself a worker approved. What? Rightly dividing truth. You rightly divide truth, you give truth, and you know what? You get two responses. Oh, I must have Jesus. Or how do I make this guy shut up? You know what? Nothing's changed. There isn't anything new. It was methods and schemes and techniques. You know, can can you just say it another way? No. No, that's the way the Bible wrote it. Next week we'll pick this up again and understand. I wanted to lay this out because you need to understand the privilege that you have to see. If you see. If you do not see, listen, if you do not have an overwhelming love for truth, go back to square one. Go back to square one. All right? If the Bible isn't something that you have a priority in, in your day, I'm not talking about, someday I'm Bible city. I'm telling you, if the Bible isn't a passion of your heart, go back to square one. Have you beheld Jesus? Because if you haven't, you're probably not his. And then you can say, well, Terry's being blunt and forward and blame me again. It's all right. I don't have any problem with that. I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. But I tell you what, if you come back next week, I'm still going to give you more truth. <laughs> so <laughs> you might just want to get used to it. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for our brother Paul. And Father, how much it means just to just to look at him. Father, I, 
These people this day, may they understand the privilege of looking into the face of Jesus Christ and seeing your glory. Father, may it be a passion. May it be an unquenchable thirst for every one of us. That, Father, that we would have a zeal for truth. Father, even when it convicts, even when it shows our resistance, may we stand and say, not our will, but yours be done. Father, I just praise you for this day. I praise you for these precious souls and the amazing things you've already done. Father, I look forward to the amazing things you will accomplish. Lord, we commit it unto you, your word, your spirit in our souls. And that, Father, we would walk in a manner worthy of our high calling. But Lord, let us, let us have a renewed understanding of the privilege of looking into the face of Jesus Christ. To your glory and praise, amen.